when I started researching and actually looking, I thought this story was good. I thought this episode was going to be 15 minutes long. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a Texas political insider who went from a power broker in the governor's mansion to serving as special political advisor to President Woodrow Wilson, along the way playing a critical part in America's role in the First World War and in the creation of the League of Nations. For the next two weeks, we talk about the Texas kingmaker, Colonel Edward House. But first, what is your favorite European city in Texas? Well, I wouldn't say favorite, but my but the one I'm most familiar with because we spent every summer there uh, is Odessa, which is way out west Texas, right there at the at the corner of New Mexico and Texas. Um, it's hot and it's flat and it's dusty and it smells like rotten eggs because of all the oil uh, of all the oil processing, the gas processing coming out of the fields, uh, which is probably not a lot like the Odessa in Ukraine, but still. It is a city, named after a European city. Now, why in the world would you want to be so dangerously close to New Mexico? (laughs) Oil, (laughs) my friend, oil. Well, I'm going to throw out a different one. Um, I'm going to say Chestahova. And Texas, meet Chestahova. Now, we talked about it a little bit uh, back in our Panamaria episode when we talked about the first Poles that came to Texas. And it's a little Polish colony. It's a tiny town with a giant European-style church in, in kind of the middle of nowhere uh, with this crazy name. Uh, the funny thing is is that uh, Jestahova, Poland, is spelled a little different. So it's kind of an Americanized version of, of it. Which <laughs> remove some I of would the say that I would <laughs> well, say that most things in Poland are spelled a little bit different okay, than but, we spell them here, Mike. But here's the thing. Like, like my surname, I think they the use a different alphabet. Right, right. Well, they have – no, it's the same alphabet. It's actually not Cyrillic. They use uh, the they use our alphabet. There's just a few extra characters in it. But here's the thing. Zolkowski is is a anglicized version of the Zolkowski that it was originally many generations ago. So, so mine's so much easier to spell. See? A lot of head shaking in this room. I just know there's way too many consonants all jammed together. It is a, Not it enough is a lot. <laughs> well, my answer to this question, uh, I'm just going to be cliche and say that my choice is Paris, Texas. Uh, they've got a big giant cowboy hat sitting on top of a miniature Eiffel Tower. And what's not to love about that? There you go. I mean, you can't beat that. <clears throat> and they made a movie about it, too. So, classic. (laughs) One of the most important Texans in the 20th century is one who is rarely discussed in history classes, almost never comes up in the list of great names. It's hardly ever mentioned other than in a few specific history books and possibly a documentary or two. Frankly, he's just for the deep history nerds. But he is a wholly remarkable individual who made his mark in Texas, the United States, and the world. And his influence is still seen today. Edward M. House was born in Houston on July 26, 1858. He was the youngest of seven children of Mary Elizabeth and Thomas William House. Edward's father, T.W., was a leading citizen in pre-Civil War Texas. He was a wealthy merchant, a banker, and a landowner. Now, the elder House 
who was an Englishman of Dutch extraction, had immigrated to the United States in 1835. And he'd worked his way up from being a baker in New York City to owning one of the first confectioner's shops in Houston. He was actually the first person to sell ice cream in the city of Houston. In only a few years, the confections business led to dry goods, shipping, sugar plantations, and even banking, as well as a prominent civic role in expanding the city's infrastructure. House's firm had prospered during the Civil War through blockade running, and he also served as mayor of the city in 1862. After the war, his English contacts kept business strong through the Reconstruction. The House children were raised with typical Victorian-era privilege. Young Edward spent six months in England in 1866. His father's political and social network brought many prominent people to the large family homes in Galveston and Houston, and Edward enjoyed the outdoor life of his father's sugar plantation near Arcola Junction. As the youngest child, he generally was left to his own devices when he wasn't at school and often roamed the vast lands his family controlled on the coastal plains south of Houston. Young Edward attended a variety of boarding schools as befitted his station. House attended Houston Academy, a school in Bath, England, a prep school in Virginia, and Hopkins Grammar School, New Haven, Connecticut. In 1877, he enrolled in Cornell University, and while he was active on the social side, he wasn't much of a scholar. He did become friends with the best kinds of students, the politically and socially connected ones. He'd also become obsessed with politics while in high school, especially the backroom dealings that settled the presidential election of 1876, which coincidentally ended Reconstruction in Texas and the South. House's brothers had all gone into business on their own, and it was expected that Edward would be engaged in their father's empire when he passed on. In 1880, his third year at Cornell, Edward House returned to Texas to care for T.W., who had gone ill. T.W. would never recover, and Edward never returned to Cornell. Edward and his five remaining siblings divided up their father's holdings. Edward took control of the family's vast amount of land, not really caring to be involved in mercantilism or, at the time, in banking. He married a young woman named Luli, and after a year-long honeymoon in Europe, they returned to Houston, where House got to work. After five years back in Houston, he had had enough, and he moved to Austin to escape the oppressive heat and humidity. Now, he quickly became active in Austin society, and he got out of the land business. He sold all of his plantations, and he ended up investing in banks and in railroads, which made him even more wealthy, and this allowed him the freedom not to have to work. In 1892, he commissioned a great mansion at 1704 West Avenue, which sadly today is an apartment complex. And this is not far from the campus of the University of Texas. It was designed by famed New York architect Frank Freeman. This house is one of the finest examples of the shingle style of residential architecture in the United States. It was a large, beautiful home. And it had an open plan interior that allowed the houses to host parties and social engagements. And from here, House began to dabble in the real passion of his life, politics. One of House's close friends in Austin was first-term Texas Governor James Hogg. Hogg was a moderate Democrat and faced a tough challenge from both the conservative wing of the party as well as the growing progressive faction. House used his vast network of social and political contacts from various elements of society to build support for Hogg's re-election. A good deal of it was on the up and up, but as is typical with Gilded Age politics, not all of it was shiny and clean. 
It's known that House greased the wheels of the electoral machinery, courted black and Hispanic voters, and there is evidence that he inherited a connection to the Klan through his father. Ultimately, Hogg won a bitter fight to return to the governor's mansion, and in gratitude, he gave House the honorary title of Lieutenant Colonel of the Texas Militia. The press, delighted at the small, quiet, dapper little man with the grandiose title and fabulous power, soon took to calling him Colonel House, and House insisted on the title for the rest of his life, despite never once ever putting on a uniform. House seemed to be more fascinated with the business of the political process and not with its application, so he never sought political office or even real political power for himself. House cultivated his own faction, which he called Our Crowd. Our Crowd became a powerful force in Texas politics. The aims of this crowd were somewhat hard to define. They were, of course, Democrats, broadly conservative, or at least geared towards the interest of the moneyed in the state. However, they weren't unredeemed conservatives stuck in the past. Some progressive policies were fostered pragmatically so that the common voter, the farmer, the rancher, the worker would continue to support the party and not drift too far to the right or the left. Of course, they held very tightly to Jim Crow policies towards non-whites, but promises to help their lot were made and fulfilled. House himself was the ultimate political operator. He was skilled in organizing and inspiring others. He worked behind the scenes to develop ties of loyalty with his close associates and used patronage to rally party workers behind his candidates. He didn't really set or execute policy, but he ensured that the key candidates in his crowd and his machine, as well as their supporters, were the ones that would execute the overall philosophy for the benefit of everyone in the machine. From 1892 to 1904, House's protégés were consecutively elected as governors of Texas. They were James Hogg, Charles Culberson, Joseph D. Sayers, and Samuel W.T. Lanham. By 1900, House had such a well-oiled machine that he started to grow bored with politics. He had continued to invest his money wisely over the preceding decades, and in 1901, brokered a deal with some East Coast investors to found the Trinity and Brazos Valley Railway Company. It was one of the first railroads serving the newly discovered Spindletop oil field near Beaumont. Of course, this made him even more fabulously wealthy, and soon he and his wife moved to New York to be closer to his business dealings. He continued to split time between the East and Austin for several years. This also allowed him to get closer to the national political arena, as well as to be more in touch with international politics and society. The 1904 election in Texas was the last that he would be directly involved with. After that, he relinquished control of the Texas Democratic Party to some hand-picked allies. For the first decade of the 20th century, House was involved with the unsuccessful attempts by the Democrats to unseat popular President Theodore Roosevelt and his successor, William Howard Taft. I mean, is that a pun? Because they're just broad men with big asses. <laughs> See, it's unseat, folks. Mm-hmm. There were men of great girth that I could not unseat. <laughs> House was an opponent of the populist icon William Jennings Bryan, opposing Bryan's view on the silver standard for currency, but he failed to find a Democratic candidate who could challenge the Republicans or wrest away support of the progressives who supported Roosevelt. He spent much of his time traveling to Europe, where he was able to observe England's liberal reforms, France's resurgence, Austria and, Reser- Austria and Russia's stagnation, and Germany's ascendancy. 
This travel helped shape a strong sense of the political future of Europe and the strengths and weaknesses of the great power nations. In 1911, House finally found his ideal candidate. In November of that year, he met the popular and gifted governor of New Jersey, the former Princeton University president, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson wasn't a fiery and charismatic populist like Brian or Roosevelt, but he was an intellectual, highly educated, with a zealous Puritan-like faith in the rightness of his beliefs. Wilson was the governor of a northern state, but he was Virginian by birth. He came from a respectable but not a wealthy family, and he was deeply religious. He identified himself as a progressive, and he had strong ideas about reforming both politics and society as a whole. Finally, he deeply admired both the English system of government and its liberal reforms, and he felt that America had a bigger role to play in the world at large. Wilson and House struck up an instant and powerful friendship, and House began grooming Wilson right away for the next step, the White House. House also spent 1910 and 1911 writing a book, a strange novel called Philip Drew, Administrator. This novel, published anonymously in 1912, told the story of Drew, a politician who leads the democratic western United States in a civil war against the plutocratic East, becoming the dictator of America. Drew then imposes a series of progressive reforms, including instituting a corporate income tax, abolishing the protective tariff, financial trust busting, an eight-hour workday, regulation of telecommunications, and old-age pensions, all before disappearing and returning America to a democratic state. House anonymously provides an explanation for all these reforms. Drew seeks to keep power in the hands of the wealthy, but the reforms are designed to ensure the common people are happy and satisfied and will not rise up against the powerful elites. Sounds uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a real page turner. <laughs> yeah, if you saw that book on the shelf, you'd go, it's like, Philip Drew, administrator. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get this book right now. Even if it had Forget about, yeah. the splashiest Tom Clancy, like, Tom Clancy and Philip Drabers, you know, some kind of splashy, silvery, fine cover. You'd read this thing and you'd be like, hmm. Say, Ulysses, I'm going to put down this. I'm going to put down this uh, Arthur, I mean, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes book and pick up this administrator book. Oh, and this one, he's looking for a dog. And this one, he's filing paperwork. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, let's talk about this. The 1912 presidential election was one of the most contentious and remarkable in American history. House was critical in securing Wilson's nomination from the Democratic Party. Wilson was a dark horse candidate who, despite having only two years of political experience, emerged after 46 ballots as the only candidate everyone could get behind. House brought to the table all 40 of Texas delegates, as well as several other western states, and he personally helped secure William Jennings Bryan's support for Wilson. In the general election, Teddy Roosevelt split the Republican vote by running as the third-party candidate, but Wilson still won in an electoral landslide. Wilson then offered Colonel House any cabinet position that House wanted, other than Secretary of State, which was promised to Bryan. House declined, instead asking only to serve as an unofficial advisor to the president. The stage was now set for Colonel House to see through his vision for the country, and indeed the world, as the closest and most powerful advisor to the president of the United States. Man, this guy is... What an interesting character. (laughs) 
I mean, this is a literal kingmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, this was a time, you know, in the, in the, this was a time when Texas governor was every two years. And that was actually up until the 1980s was that the Texas governor was elected every two years. So he, they had, you know, over a 12 year period, they had hit six consecutive elections uh, that he won. You know, he was the, he was the person to say, this is the guy. Um, and if you, you know, just to, just to imagine that level of power and, and capability and, you know, the thing is, is he never made a speech to the public. He never, you know, he didn't, he was the man in the background. He was the, he was the guy moving things around. So, you know, this is one of those things of, I, I'd ask the question in a, you know, you said earlier, it's like, this is a little known story. So why do you mm-hmm. think that this story is so undertold? I mean, by this point, I guess in American history, most students are asleep anyway, so... Yes. Yep. It. Well, actually, uh, to be honest, most American history in, in high school, at least, rarely gets past the Civil War. So um, it, it's it's rare that you get up to the point where you get to the Colonel House. But I think it's because he was such an unassuming personality. Um, he was a very – if you, you see pictures of him, he was – a like we, we said earlier, he's a dapper, small little man, uh, uh, just very unassuming. Um, and – the other thing is that he was he was in an era where there were these outsized personalities. I mean, James, you know, James Hogg is pretty well remembered mostly because of his unfortunate name for his wife and his daughter. Um, but um, he was also kind of a giant in Texas politics for many years. Um, and then when you get to, you know, you get to Roosevelt and William Jennings Bryant and you get into then you get to Woodrow Wilson um the, the the power behind the throne kind of gets lost in a lot of ways, but um, for a time he was a pretty well known person. I actually had seen the name Colonel House and obviously reading history books about the First World War, and uh, I was at Half Price Books uh, last year, uh, just killing some time, and I saw a book called The Mysterious Colonel House, and I, and it was in the it was actually in the uh, the front section which had which had the rarer books and I and I it was like thirty dollars I I should have bought it because I'd never seen it since, and uh, it was probably fifty years old so I really wish I'd bought that book but you know it got me thinking like this is a guy who was from Texas you know and he he we will see in the next episode just how far he really rises, uh, in the on the world stage. But his roots were in Texas. He grew up in Texas. You know, he spent a lot of time out, you know, outside of Texas to go to school. But and his father was, you know, was a transplanted Texan. But you know, just just the fascinating little details of his life in his early life, to me, like I said, they're just fascinating. And so this character is really an, a very interesting character. And we'll see. I think he predates what is pretty common today, which is that political advisor to the president, that the, 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 the full-time uh, politics person mm. that, that kind of. Yeah. It's someone guide. that doesn't, doesn't hold office, but uh, is very prominent alongside the, the person in charge. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I guess it's the, it's just interesting to see like these, you know, there, he came from, he came from strong, wealthy roots, you know, a real pull-up-your-bootstraps kind of, you know, the 
the English Dutch of America and that whole kind of thing. And um, it's very interesting, like just how lucrative his father's business enterprises were. And that that was just boring to him. He was like, let's get into politics and push the chess pieces around. Yeah. And not to spoil well, anything. And it, oh, it, go ahead. Yeah. And he was, and that's the thing is, it, it, he didn't necessarily jump right into politics. That his family's wealth and money was an, was a means to get into what he was, the first stage, which was the society. He was definitely in the eighteen eighties. He was an he was a society man, and and so in Austin, living in Austin and Houston, he was definitely he was the kind of person. He was like a Newland Archer uh, from uh, the Age of Innocence. He was he was a kind of person who was always at the parties and had parties at this big home and that they built that home specifically to entertain people and, and to have these, these cocktail parties where they're dressed in tuxedos and on a Wednesday and, and everyone's smoking cigars and talking about business and politics and things like that. So uh, that, that's the, that's the interesting thing is that it's, is he built his social network first and then he got into the the full time politics thing, which which is which is the way you did things back then. That was that was just how things were done. So we're going to do another part on this, and we're going to talk about you know his later role in the politics. Now he you know it's just interesting. Like this is just a great story of how um, you know not only his father's story of pulling himself up, like you said, but then his sort of story of rising to the highest halls of power you know, in just a generation mm-hmm. and being in, in not just rising, but architecting it. It's so interesting that there's this, the, this weird gilded age of history that people uh-huh. see through such a like rose colored lens, like literally. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. So I, I, you know, knew the broad outline of the story that, that we wanted to talk about um, because I knew just, I'd read enough about the history, you know, enough from a, from a, from a summary perspective about kind of what house did and what he represented. When I started researching and actually looking, I thought this story was good. I thought this episode was gonna be 15 minutes long. Um, just a quick, Hey, a couple of paragraphs. This is a neat guy. This is an interesting story. Instead, when you actually dig in and you do look and there are academic papers about him, there are books about him. There are websites with information about him. You actually look and you find these fascinating stories. But the the other thing is that you find quite a lot of stories that kind of cast him as an Illuminati type figure <laughs> and that he's an actually an early, early uh, American Illuminati and conspiracy theory center, center of conspiracy theories in this country. So um, there's some there's some stuff that's out there that is that is very critical of him Um just from an academic perspective, but then there's some stuff that's kind of out there that's pretty critical. Is and a lot of it centers around this book, this this Drew novel. Um, that's just kind of like say, a yeah, yeah. That that the description of that book um, seems like it could be the center of some sort of uh, uh, conspiracy or um, you know, uh, Ayn Randian. Yeah, yeah, Indian objective, yeah, very, of, yeah, kind of. You know, of, it's that, like here's their here's the master plan laid yeah. out in plain sight. Well, and and you think about it, um, if you have a political proclivity, a, if you have a political proclivity, 
where you are generally opposed to centralized government and especially are opposed to an income tax, uh, a novel by a man who becomes the chief advisor to the president, uh, arguing for a you know a basically a quiet revolution or a public revolution of government to give centralized government and corporate income tax um, is is something to kind of point to because you know especially since the bu- bu- book was published anonymously he quickly came out and said yeah I wrote this book but it was published anonymously and so people there there you know. If you're if you're leaning that way, this certainly becomes something that you can really look at. I mean, very cool guy. Looking forward to seeing the rest of it. Um, there is something nefarious, um, <laughs> like right out of like a villain <laughs> movie of like, you know, you had to like not only devise a plan to destroy the world, you had to hire like a team of model makers. To make like a small HO railroad layout of like your plan, and in this case, it's like I not only had a plan to get this guy to, to like how I wanted to set politics in the U.S., I actually sat down and wrote like you know uh, fifty thousand words about it and had it bound and put on the shelf of every library for everyone to read. So, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I went through a couple of editorial you know rounds with an editor, and we really. You really punched it up. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, hey, Ben Affleck made a movie called, you know, The Accountant, so that's a real <laughs> barn burner of a title, too. The Administrator. The Administrator. That could be the sequel. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We want to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself over to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. You love this show, you love Texas, and you love the path to power from Texas. So get out there and help us out by telling your friends about the show and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to help us out financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.